this Lord's Day, I'd like to direct your attention to a new topic in our series. I'd like to talk with you about a covenantal interpretation of God's commandments. We've considered uh, the motives that we are to have as we approach God in worship. We must fear Him as the Sovereign Lord, as the King of the universe, as the Creator. Because God is not some kind of celestial bellhop uh, who is at our beck and call whenever we snap our fingers that He's there to perform our bidding. He is a awful God. I prefer the word awful over awesome. Because awful, in the way that it was originally understood, meant that God was full of awe. Not that He simply had some awe. God is awful. He's full of awe. He can't become more uh, full with regard to awe and wonder. Men fell down as dead before the very presence of God. The people of God trembled before God, Mount Sinai. The holy seraphim covered their eyes before the majesty of God. So we are duty-bound, dear ones, to worship and obey the Lord God. But the second motive we considered was that we must love Him as our gracious God and Redeemer who has delivered us from the house of bondage and who has bestowed upon us His covenant love and made us His very own bride God has delivered us, dear ones, from a life of harlotry, wherein we were in bondage to, if you will, the pimp of the kingdom of darkness, Satan. We were in bondage to that one, to serve him, held captive to do his will. The Lord God has rescued us from the gutter of that lifestyle. From that shameful life, our gracious God has rescued us and cleansed us and clothed us in the blessed robe of Christ's unrighteousness. And He has proclaimed to us, I am your God and you are my people. You belong to me. You are bound to me. The cords of love. And so we're not only duty-bound to obey God, as we have said, we are love-bound to obey and to worship our God. But now as we approach God's commandments, and particularly those first four commandments which direct us in our worship of God, the question naturally arises, how are we to understand and interpret God's commandments concerning worship? Are we to disregard anything God says in the Old Testament about worship and look only to the New Testament for direction in worship? Do we just begin afresh, anew, with a clean slate, with the New Covenant in the New Testament? Is that how we're to approach worship? How much liberty does God grant us in regulating our worship of Him? Is he concerned about the big issues of worship and not the details of worship? Many, many questions that uh, pertain to how we're to interpret God's commandments as regards worship. Dear ones, we must have objective standards of interpretation that give us God's mind and will on the subject of worship. And one of the most basic principles of interpretation is this. God's Word must be interpreted covenantally. We're going to spend the whole sermon talking about what that means. God's Word must be interpreted covenantally. If we would know God, if we would know man, creation... We would know how to worship God and glorify Him. We must put on dear ones, covenantal glasses. If we do not put on covenantal glasses as we read the Word of God, 
Everything we read is going to be blurred and distorted. And one of the most important and blessed words that you will find in all of Scripture is the word covenant. It is by means of covenant that God has revealed Himself to man. It is by means of covenant that we relate to one another in our families, in the church, in the civil realm, uh, in business. In fact, there is no area of life that you could possibly think of in which the covenant does not relate. Every ethical decision you make is a covenantal decision. We might simply say that we're going to summarize it. We might say all of life is covenantal. There is no neutral place where the covenant does not apply. God's covenant does not apply. There is no secular or sacred distinction. Oftentimes, people begin to think in terms of, well, I need to uh, think in terms of what God wants, us, wants me to do or wants the church to do inside the worship service, but God doesn't speak with the same authority outside the context of the worship service. See, there is no secular sacred distinction when it comes to the covenant because God is the covenant God who owns all things. God does not make those kinds of distinctions between secular and sacred. He is Lord of all. And His covenant word speaks to every area of life. It speaks to the family. Think of marriage vows. That's a covenantal ceremony. We make vows before God about the covenant that we're entering. We're bound to God to obey Him and to follow His precepts as they pertain to our family. Whether it be disciplining our children or loving our, our, our wife or submitting to our husband. Uh, business world. Uh, uh, any contract that you enter into is a covenantal arrangement. It may be a covenantal arrangement between two people. Uh, there are those kinds of covenants in the Bible. Not only between God and man, but between uh, two or more persons. But that, nevertheless, is a covenant relationship. And because God has given us the duty to work for Him, so that all of our work is, is uh, a valuable, there is nothing that is an unholy vocation if it's a lawful vocation. All vocations are holy before God. And therefore, because of that, they are covenantal. We are obligated to work according to what our Supreme Master says. Work is covenantal. Education is covenantal. We can't simply try and educate our children in a vacuum, in a void. Every fact... Every truth is related to God. And we cannot divorce it from Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So everything we teach our children is covenantal. And we're responsible before God as to how we train them. The Lord of the covenant, dear ones, is Lord of all. And he speaks with the same absolute authority to every area of life. Another way of saying this simply is that the scripture is sufficient for every area of life. We don't need experts in every other field telling us what we're to do, how we're to act in those particular areas of life, what we're to think. God gives us his inspired will, his word, it is covenantal. What I'm giving you right now uh, is basically introductory material. I think it's necessary to build somewhat of a foundation about the covenant before we get into the text. 
of the text that we'll be considering is in Galatians chapter 3. And uh, we will probably be spending a lot less time in the text than we are in laying the foundation, but this is such an important issue that I really believe it's essential to lay the foundation so that we can understand the text uh, when we get to it. All men, women, and children, dear ones, are related to God covenantally, whether they're Christians or not Christians. All people are related to God covenantally. They are either covenant breakers or they are covenant keepers. There are two basic kinds of people in the world today. Covenant keepers and covenant breakers. And the awful wrath of God falls, as we find in the Word of God, falls upon covenant breakers. Those who rebel against God and turn against this covenant. But God promises rich blessings upon those who keep His covenant. Not only upon them, but upon their children for thousands of generations. So the Scripture says. None in the world can escape the principle of the covenant. Many people are completely oblivious to the word. Many people don't, wouldn't recognize the word if you, you spelled it out uh, before them. They wouldn't know what in the world the word meant. But they cannot escape covenantal impl- implications because they are in covenant with God through Adam, first of all. All men are in covenant with God through Adam. But we who know the Lord Jesus Christ are in covenant not only through Adam, but by God's grace through the second Adam. We're in covenant with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So all men are related covenantally to God. But it's only those who understand these truths that we have been referring to about God's covenant who will be able to soundly interpret life and worship in terms of Scripture. Only those who put on their covenantal glasses are going to be able to make sense out of the Word of God. Only those who put on their covenantal glasses are going to truly understand what God requires of them in regard to worship. Others will not be able to uh, make a whole lot of sense out of God's Word be very limited. And so, dear ones, I want you to understand though some of the things we're talking about today may seem very theological. Theology is not bad. Sometimes it's difficult to understand. Sometimes it makes our brains work uh, extra hard to really comprehend. But life is built upon doctrine. Uh, Practice is built upon doctrine and teaching and theology. As a person thinks, so is he, the scripture says. So we must be people who know, who understand God's word. If we are to to worship and live correctly. So I want you to understand the covenant is intensely practical. It's not only theological, but it's intensely practical. It's not just for theologians. Covenant is for children. Because how you treat your parents, young people, children, whether with respect, whether with obedience or disobedience, that's a covenantal issue. You are required and bound before God to speak respectfully to your parents. Very, very practical. It's for Housewives who may, because of the flood of publicity that would continually remind you that you're second-class citizens if you work inside the home and bear children and raise them for the glory of God, this is a covenantal issue because there is not a higher calling before the covenant God that you could have than to raise children of the covenant. This is a practical issue that relates to plumbers and carpenters, that relates to engineers and to the magistrate, to pastors and elders. 
this particular issue of the covenant, I'm convinced is uh, if you wanted to summarize in just one word, what was the Reformation all about? What was at stake? Why were people willing to die for the faith? Because they realized that God was a covenant God. That they were bound by covenant to Him. And that all of life was covenantal. If you were to summarize in just one word what was the distinctive of the Reformation, I submit to you that the Reformers, in contrast to the Roman Catholics and the Anabaptists, would declare that it was the word covenant. That's what epitomized Calvin, Beza, Bucer, and Knox, and Rutherford, and Gillespie. Covenant. They understood that all of life was covenantal. Well, with such a very important word, uh, let's define, define a covenant. And then let's break the definition down so that we understand what a covenant is. What is a covenant? Well, the Children's Catechism says that a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. That's fine as it relates to to, uh, human covenants. That is a very simple definition as it relates to human covenants. But, But human covenants are based upon the covenant which God has established between himself and man. And so let's look at that covenant as the uh, as the exemplar model uh, of what a covenant is. So the covenant which God has established with man, this would be the definition that I would submit to you, is a sovereign relationship of God's grace mediated through a representative in which God promises blessing to those who love and keep His commandments but in which God threatens cursing to those who do not love Him and who rebel against His commandments. And I'd like to just have you carefully notice the parts of that definition. First of all, God is absolutely sovereign in this relationship of a covenant. This is not a relationship of equals when we talk about a covenantal relationship between God and man. God does not consult with man concerning the arrangement, the terms or conditions of the covenant before establishing his covenant with man. He establishes his covenant and says, this is what you are to do. These are the commandments. These are the conditions and terms of of the covenant that I'm establishing with you. God does not take a vote he does not take a public opinion poll to see whether or not people like the terms and the conditions of the covenant. God enters into a covenant and then man is duty bound to obey him because he is the Lord, the creator who owns all things, who created them in the first place. He is the king. God sovereignly establishes his covenant with man and man is responsible to believe love and obey God. And I emphasize this particular point that there are no conditions in establishing a covenant with man. God unilaterally enters a covenant with man. There are conditions. The conditions once he has established his covenant with you, are for the purpose of enjoying the blessings. 
or to disobey or receiving the curses. But you are, whether you like it or not, when God establishes the covenant, you're in covenant with God. That's the way the covenant operates between God and man. It's intended for our benefit. So if men chafe underneath God's covenant, if they rebel, if they dig in their heels, if they throw their fists up at God, uh, they do not understand the blessing of being in covenant with God. The blessings that God promises. So it's nothing at all for us to to uh, look at God and say, how could you impose this upon me? Uh, no, this is a great blessing that God enters into with, with people. And I think this this whole idea of God sovereignly entering into covenant is, is perfectly portrayed uh, every time we baptize a child. Uh, because the child is passive. The child doesn't even realize what's going on normally if they're an infant. God enters into covenant with that child. And then we as parents uh, take upon ourselves those particular vows that we will be faithful to God and covenant with God to train this child in the way in which he should go. But that really takes away our freedom, doesn't it? When we when we see how God has commanded us to apply baptism to children who are rather passive, whereas you know to talk about merely believers' baptism uh, implies uh, certain kinds of uh, freedom. I mean, it, 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 at least it can in some people's minds that we had a choice. Uh, but uh, that is all stripped away when we understand how God enters into covenant with children through parents. Well, it's the same way that God has entered into covenant with all of Adam's descendants. He didn't ask all of Adam's descendants if they wanted to be in covenant with him. He entered into the covenant with Adam and Adam represented all of his descendants. He didn't ask Noah, uh, or he didn't ask all of Noah's descendants whether they wanted to be uh, in covenant with him through Noah. He didn't ask uh, all of the children of Israel. It was through Moses the meteor. Or the descendants of David, but through David. Or the descendants of Christ, the seed of Christ. You see, there is a mediator as well to the covenant. In each one of those covenants. Whether Adam, Noah, whether uh, Abraham or Moses, or David or Christ. There is a mediator. And it is sovereignly applied by God. I want you also to be aware uh, that this was basically the practice of, of the uh, kings of that particular time. Uh, that when uh, a, uh, a mighty king would uh, come and he would uh, take under his control vassal kings, he would demolish their kingdoms, uh, he would enter into covenant with them. And he would uh, not uh, say, how many of you would uh, like for me to be your king? Uh, and uh, take a vote. No, they were uh, in submission to him. They were in covenant with him. And he laid out the terms of the covenant. So this has historical uh, precedent as well. We can see this actually uh, lived out in history. Uh, Those people just better uh, uh, be very thankful that they were even alive because they were his enemies. And if he granted them life, they ought to be thankful for that. The second part about this definition I've given you with regard to covenant is that God is gracious to enter into this covenant relationship with man. For, dear ones, He owes man nothing. He didn't have to create us. He doesn't have to order providentially uh, things in such a way that we have loved ones, family, that we have uh, a roof over our heads, we have clothing. Uh, God doesn't owe us those things. Uh, God does not owe us redemption. Uh, his salvation is of His sovereign love and will. First Corinthians 4.7 uh, I think hits the nail right on the head. When the Apostle says to the Corinthians, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything you have is a gift from God. 
Paul says again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Not some things, but everything you have. Even the shirt on your back is a gift from God. And this comes out time and time again in the scriptures that God is gracious to enter into a covenant with people that particularly after the fall, what man deserved was his condemnation and his wrath. And so that God, when he enters into covenant through Christ with his people, is being very gracious. But I would even emphasize that even under the first covenant, which God established with Adam, uh, even though it's called the covenant of works, I believe that there is even grace in the covenant of works and that God was not obligated to enter into a covenant with Adam. That God uh, freely chose to do so, to bless Adam with the things that he blessed Adam in the garden and even to reward Adam for his obedience was a gracious proposition upon God's part. The third point about this definition is that God mediates his covenant through a covenant head, a representative, a mediator. You might hear the objection uh, from someone who uh, is coming from 20th century America, maybe 20th century Canada, uh, who has a very free mind uh, and says, uh, I don't think it's fair that God chose Adam to be my representative. I don't like him as my representative. Uh, I resent that. He was a poor representative. Well, again, uh, God didn't choose a, um, a sinful representative. He was a perfect representative uh, before he fell. Uh, he was sinless. Uh, but the, more to the point simply is that God is the one who even chooses the representatives. And uh, Adam represented all of his descendants. Uh, as he sinned, he sinned. And his sin was imputed to all of his descendants. So that when Adam fell, all of his descendants fell with him. But on the other side of the coin, you don't hear too many people saying, I don't like the fact that Christ represented me. You know, we're very quick to scorn the fact that Adam represented us. It was our covenant head. But I don't hear too many people who uh, are believers uh, making a big deal, at least uh, uh, who are alarmed at the fact that God sovereignly chose His Son to mediate the covenant of grace for all of his people. But you see, it's the same kind of federal headship. In Adam we sin, but in Christ we're all made alive. In Adam we die, but in Christ we're all made alive. alive. And so that's very important to realize uh, is that God's covenant is, is mediated through um, representatives. That's the same thing in baptism, again, with your children. Your children are brought into the covenant through your headship as parents. You're responsible to, to train, to teach them to be faithful. And it's that same kind of covenantal representation. They can't speak for themselves, but you are speaking for them. You're saying, I will do what God calls me to do in training them. And God promises that as we are faithful, He will reward our, our obedience to Him. And finally, the last thing I want to say uh, about uh, that definition is this. That God calls those with whom He covenants to enjoy His blessings through loving, obedience, and submission to His just and good commandments to enjoy His blessings. You see, the covenant is intended for our blessing. When we're unfaithful, God brings judgment. 
but it's intended for our good and our well-being. To be in covenant with God is one of the greatest blessings that a human being could ever enjoy, if not the greatest, to be in covenant with God. And we not only enjoy, dear ones, spiritual blessings when we're in covenant with God, but God even blesses us as His commandments teach. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Scripture says, not simply that if we children obey their parents that they'll be rewarded spiritually, but what my Bible says. The Scripture says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. This is the promise now, verse 3. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. A material blessing in the covenant. Not simply spiritual blessings of heaven, but material blessings as well. Furthermore, Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things. Clothing, shelter, food will be added to you. And as you read the scriptures, you see how God's covenant is not simply one of spiritual blessing that you must wait for uh, in, in heaven. But we reap God's covenant blessings daily here upon the earth. But at the same time, uh, tied up with the covenant is that God promises to pay, to repay to the face to those who rebel against Him. He will not take it lightly. When someone digs in their heels and shakes their fists in God's face, who rebels against God, those who refuse to submit to His gracious laws, He will in fact judge. Psalm 18, I think, gives us the right perspective in regard to God's covenant, both the blessings and the curses that fall. Psalm 18, verses 25 through 27. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down the high looks. See? That's what we're talking about. There are covenantal responsibilities. If we are to enjoy the blessings of God, dear ones, it's not a free ride. We must be faithful to obey God, to love to keep His covenant, to pass it on to our children. We don't have time to go into this uh, this time all of the covenant ceremonies that we find in the Scripture, covenant signs and seals, but associated with the covenant, there are ceremonies. Uh, the Lord's Supper, baptism, covenant ceremonies, uh, membership vows, covenant ceremonies, when you become a member of a church, marriage vows, covenant ceremony. But there are also covenant signs and seals. The wedding ring becomes a covenant sign, seal. Uh, the, uh, the water in baptism becomes a covenant sign, seal. The elements of, of wine and bread become covenant signs and seals, again, that uh, call us continuously back to the fact that we are in covenant with God, that He owns us, that we belong to Him, and therefore are obligated to follow Him and obey Him. begin to uh, build upon that foundation moving beyond the initial covenant that God established with Adam in the garden that's called the covenant of works Adam fell God covenanted with his son the Lord Jesus Christ to save uh, those people whom he had chosen to save 
after Adam fell. And in that particular covenant, we find, we call that the covenant of grace. The covenant of works, the covenant of grace. Under the umbrella of the covenant of grace, again, God covenanting with Christ, are particular individual covenants that we will find in Scripture. They're all post-fall covenants. They are redemptive covenants. Beginning with the covenant that God made, uh, even with Adam after the fall, that he would provide for him one who would crush the head of the servant. Moving from Adam to the covenant that God made with Abraham, and then the God, the covenant God made with Noah and with Moses and David, until we come to the new covenant, which is the covenant in Christ's blood, Christ fulfilling that being the fullest expression of God's covenant of grace. I want us just to briefly look at these covenants and understand how we're to interpret them because that's going to, to determine to a great extent how we interpret the scriptures applies to worship, how we look at those covenants. First of all, dear ones, understand that each of those covenants that I just mentioned historically revealed through redemptive history. Each of them manifests God's sovereign grace and His holy commandments. In each of the covenants, there is grace and law. There is not simply grace in the new covenant or in the Abrahamic covenant, but then only law in the Mosaic covenant. There is grace and law in each of those covenants. Each one of them. Because, again, God graciously establishes the covenant, but He gives, in His covenant, He gives conditions for enjoying the blessing. And you'll find that in each of God's covenants, even in the New Covenant, especially in the New Covenant. There is no, therefore, strict and rigid dichotomy between law and grace. And some would seek to uh, uh, tear and uh, pull uh, law and grace and put them into these separate categories of covenants. And because these covenants are consecutive and historical, one falling on the heels of the other, we ought to understand a covenantal perspective of Scripture in that God establishes a covenant here. But when he's through with this particular covenant with Adam, and he moves on to the covenant with Noah, he's not beginning a brand new covenant with Noah. That covenant ought to be built upon the foundation. That was the covenant that was made with Adam. And then when he establishes his covenant with Abraham, he's not establishing a brand new covenant distinct entirely from the previous covenant. Each covenant builds upon the next covenant. We might illustrate this in many ways. The covenant is organic. It's organic. It's growing. The covenant that God establishes from the very beginning with Adam uh, after the fall to the new covenant through Christ is one which might be compared to a flower. You have the stem first pop up. And then you see a bud appear. And then the bud opens and there's the blossom. Well, at each successive stage, that's still that flower. Or we might compare it to a butterfly. Who, uh, in which you have uh, at first a caterpillar and then weaves a cocoon and then out of the cocoon comes this beautiful uh, creation, this, this butterfly in glory surpassing the caterpillar. But in nature, essentially, that same caterpillar. And so each covenant is essentially the same as to 
God's grace that is being uh, portrayed and God's commandments. The outward form, God is at liberty to change. And we see changes in the forms, the outward administration of the covenant. But the essence of the covenant is the same from each covenant to the next. Or think of the development of a child. You have a baby. And then you have a toddler. And then comes a child. And, and then a youth. And then finally an adult. Well, you wouldn't say that that's a, an entirely different person. You know, the adult as opposed to the baby. It's gone through different forms. But in essence, it's the same person. Well, the covenants must be looked at in that way. They are all expressions of the covenant of grace that God has established with Christ. And that's important uh, because there's only one way, a couple things I want to say, there's only one way in which God saves. God only saves through grace, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And people in the Old Covenant were looking forward uh, to the Savior who was to come. And though they were offering sacrifices, their faith was not in the sacrifice. It was in the fact that God was going to provide one who would make sacrifices uh, unnecessary anymore. And so there's only one way in which God saves. But if you have all these unique, separate, distinct covenants with unique, separate revelation for each covenant that's not tied together in any way, that in a, in a sense, this would be the non-covenantal view, the dispensational view, would be more like rather than building one upon another covenant, it would be like walking into separate rooms in a house and closing the door behind you when you had come out of one room and going into another room and closing that door behind you and beginning afresh and anew. Well, that's not the way the scripture teaches us to look at it as we'll see in Galatians chapter 3. They are organically related. They are not separate and distinct with new revelation distinct from the other. We are to take the revelation that God has given us in previous covenants and unless God alters it as to form or content, we are to assume that that revelation that God has given is still covenantally true for us. That we're to abide by it. We're to follow it. You see, the importance in, in maintaining that distinction is going to give you a completely different outlook with regard to how to interpret God's Word, particularly His commandments as it relates to worship. And so, we, being covenantal, presume continuity from a previous covenant unless God, the lawgiver, alters, amends, or changes that. We presume continuity, that those things that God said in the past are going to be true today. Can you imagine if every administration that came into power, whether in the United States or Canada, they had to repeat every single commandment or law? I mean, it would take them however long they're, they're in power, four years in the United States, the president. It would take them probably four years to enumerate every law in the past that still applies in the future. Well, we don't do that. We assume continuity unless there is an alteration in a law. We assume continuity. We're not to presume because God says nothing in the Mosaic Covenant about the rainbow and God's promise not to destroy the earth by water again that God in some way has changed his mind. We are to assume that God continues to, continues to say to us that he, every time we see a rainbow in the sky, that he will not destroy the world by water. Again, we presume continuity. God doesn't have to repeat that in His Word in each successive stage of the covenant. And so, one who's thinking covenantally, when they, they, they see silence on a particular issue that's referred to previously, silence, what does it imply? 
it implies continuity. The one who's thinking with looking through dispensational glasses, when there is silence, what does it imply? It implies discontinuity. God has to say it all over again. Otherwise, it doesn't apply to us. Can you imagine how big our Bible would be if God repeated everything in every successive commandment or covenant? It's huge. Because God is silent in the new covenant concerning rape or bestiality or marrying your aunt or your uncle, it does not imply that God now condones those sins. Because he said it once, that's all he needs to say it. <clears throat> One last little illustration before we look at the text very quickly. Have you ever tried to uh, uh, talk to a fellow uh, believer uh, who is a Baptist about baptism and uh, talk about infant baptism with them and you just feel like you're pounding your head against the wall because they just can't see it you know uh, what what's the hang-up why don't they understand that children should be baptized well because they're waiting for some particular command in the New Testament to say, thou shalt, just as God said about circumcision, circumcising the Old Testament, they're looking for a specific command for God to say, you shall baptize your infant children. And that's what they're looking for. And they will, they will in effect, say that to you. Where does God command it? Well, you see the difference between thinking covenantally and thinking dispensationally. Okay. If we have covenantal glasses, we see that God has applied the sign of the covenant to, to uh, children uh, from the time of Abraham. When he established his covenant, we understand that we are related to Abraham by faith. He is our father, according to Galatians 3 and Romans 4. And that therefore the sign of the covenant is to be applied to our children. The sign is changed as to outward form. God can do that. But the sign of the covenant is to be applied. Why do we believe that? Well, we think covenantally. Well, that's the argument that I want you to see that is used in Galatians chapter 3. So, please turn there with me. And for the next few moments, I'll only be really summarizing the the main points uh, uh, this morning, this afternoon. So, let's uh, look uh, closely. Galatians chapter 3. And focusing on, on verses 15 uh, and following, 15 through really 25. The background to this particular letter of the Apostle Paul, you remember, is that uh, Judaistic false teachers were leading Gentile converts into Jewish ceremonialism, Jewish ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, like circumcision and uh, dietary laws and feasts and festivals and we're saying in essence that unless you uh, are circumcised unless you follow the dietary laws and the Jewish calendar unless you do these things you're not acceptable before God in other words they were saying yes it's true that you must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be declared righteous before God but you must also do these things as well these are also conditions to your being justified by faith. And so they were these these false teachers were throwing these Galatian uh, converts back into the Old Testament, in essence. That you have to become a Jew, follow, follow these Jewish laws before you can be acceptable before God. But the point that the Apostle Paul makes here is is a very simple and I'll summarize it first and then we'll look at the passage the point is simply this God made a promise in the 
covenant that he made with Abraham. The covenant that God made with Moses did not annul the promise that God made with Abraham. God didn't start all over again. God built upon the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant the covenant that he made with Moses. Because, as we will see, Paul says all these covenants point to Jesus Christ. They are successive historical covenants built upon one another. And they were, the false teachers were in effect saying, God started all over again and you've got to go back to Moses. You've got to follow uh, the, the things they weren't even understanding really uh, what uh, the covenant made with Moses was about uh, because they were false teachers. But they were saying that you had to go through all these things in order to be declared righteous before God. But Paul takes them back to the covenant that was with Abraham. So let's, let's consider this uh, very quickly here. First point about the passage is that the promise is not changed at all by the giving of the law. The promise is not changed at all by the giving of the law. Verses 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. It is not say unto seed as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul declares in this particular passage, verses 15 through 18, Paul declares you can't change the promise. You can't change the Abrahamic covenant because the promise precedes the law. The law is built upon the promise. The promise came first. You can't annul the promise. Right? That's very, very significant. The covenant made with Moses never in any way invalidated the promise which God made to Abraham. That God would bless Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations, that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that in his seed and through his seed he would bless all families of the earth. God never annulled that promise. In fact, every successive covenant points to that promise. And so Paul says in this particular uh, passage, 15 through 18, he says, you can't change the promise because the promise points beyond the law. You don't start all over again. If I were to put it in my own words, Paul's saying, you don't start all over again. Okay? One covenant builds upon the next. It's not a dispensational perspective. They all point forward. But then you can hear the dull murmur of voices in the Galatian church uh, asking them, what's the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, of the law? That that uh, dispensation or that age of law that uh, uh, Moses, God uh, made with Moses. What's the, the purpose of that? Are you saying that the law of God or the Mosaic Covenant had no purpose at all? Or that perhaps it was even evil because it it uh, involved law as opposed to promise. Paul says absolutely not. Absolutely not. He says the law actually, that is the Mosaic Covenant, actually makes the promise made Abraham necessary. Because law, the ceremonial commandments of the Old Testament, the law could not save anyone. If anyone was going to be saved on the basis of law-keeping and keeping the ceremonies and the sacrifices and whatever God commanded in, the, in that particular covenant, they could not do so perfectly. 
the law would only serve to condemn them if they were seeking to be justified on the basis of the law. It can only serve to condemn them. It is the promise that God made. And so, Paul's saying, this particular period of time, this administration of law under Moses, actually serves to make the promise necessary. In God's redemptive history, it builds. It builds one upon the other. Many gracious things that God taught His people through the Mosaic period. Uh, many things that reminded them, as we'll see, of their sin and their need of Christ. But it also pointed to the fact that they could not save themselves, that they needed a substitute. And so, Paul says in verse 19, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. And so we see that the law, that particular period, reveals to God's people their sin. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, we find that God says, verses 1 through 4, I won't read all of the verses there, but basically he's saying that while this period of Levitical uh, priesthood while that stands, it's a continual reminder that your sins have are, have not been taken away because uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. As long as the priest continues, continues to minister, it's an indication that there's yet something to come. It points you to the need of a Savior. So the period of the law, as important as it is, is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It reveals to us our sin. It was added because of transgressions. We find further that in this uh, the verses 19 through 22 that the law does not have the power to impart life. Verses 21 and 22 says, "Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law." But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If life, eternal life, could have come by law-keeping, then there would have been a law that God would have given that we could keep that would grant life. But law, life doesn't come from keeping the law. Life comes from God Himself, graciously imparted to us by promise through the Abrahamic covenant made clear again in the Mosaic covenant and Davidic covenant and, and realized fully in the new covenant. And so Paul says in conclusion that the law and promise the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant two different covenants are not enemies of one another. They're not closed doors to one another. It's not like building when you pass from one covenant to the next, like building a brand new house. It's like in one covenant laying the foundation in one covenant and then building upon the foundation in the next covenant. They are friends reconciled together. They're not enemies. And we come finally then to the New Covenant and we must understand the New Covenant to be the final arbiter because it is the most full expression of God's covenantal revelation to us. And when we go to the New Covenant, Matthew through Revelation, we seek to understand what does God say about annulling any future or past things that God has said. What does he say about worship? Is he silent about psalm singing? If even he were silent about the singing of psalms, that would be sufficient covenantally to establish that we ought to be singing psalms and nothing else. But God is not even silent in the New Testament about psalm singing. We know from God's new covenant revelation that the blood of wolves and goats sacrifices the priesthood 
uh, the uh, ceremony associated with the tabernacle has all been done away with. And therefore, we are not to bring into God's worship those things that pertain to ceremonial worship of the Old Testament. That's covenantal thinking. That's allowing the new covenant alone to dictate to us, not to our whims and not to our, our prejudices and our, our preferences, what should be in a worship service, what will attract people. Those uh, are irrelevant any wicked considerations when we talk about the worship of God. What does God say in His Word about what should be included in worship? Covenant. From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And so, dear ones, uh, God's covenant is, as I said, very outset. It's very, very practical with regard to family, with regard to the state, with regard to the church. God grant us covenantal glasses. God grant that we will see His Word through the covenant and not through dispensational glasses. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you uh, that we find in your word a testimony to its own authority that all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That your word, your covenantal word, is sufficient to guide us. And that we are to be not simply New Testament Christians, we are to be biblical Christians. All of your covenant word being brought to bear upon worship, yea, even every area of life. Well, Father, I pray that you will humble us before you, that you will cause us to be diligent students of your word. And that if, Father, we have left portions of your word unstudied, that if we have not uh, been provoked uh, to, uh, to study uh, certain portions of the Old Testament, oh God, help us to be students of your word, the entire word of God. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace. Therefore, as your people, as we seek to be pure in worship, that, O oh God, you would grant to us the grace to, to interpret uh, your holy word covenantally. Thank you, Lord God, for your, the rich heritage that we have uh, received and passed on to us from our forefathers in the faith. Thank you, Lord, that we have not to have not had to reinvent the wheel, as it were, but that, God, we have reaped the blessings of, of hundreds of years of, of study in regard to this issue of the covenant. Oh, God, help us to avail ourselves of uh, our forefathers in the faith, the learning and the study, the teachers which you have granted to the church through men like that. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful and obedient people to keep your covenant and to pass that covenant on to our children. For Jesus' sake, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.